Well, today we're continuing our series on reimagined worship. And we got into this whole discussion of this topic based on several conversations this past year. What is worship? What does it look like? Uh, uh, how, does it, how does it look from God's perspective? What should it look like in our lives? At what point of time do we actually worship? And we recognize that there is a thing called a worship service on Sundays, but worship is far bigger than a 75-minute slice of our week. It is a perspective of living every moment of every day in the presence of the Lord and living for the purpose of His glory. And we've looked at how that looks in a family, how it may look different in a family setting than in a context of a church service. And last week, we really took the extreme view that it can actually um, turn your work environment into a sanctuary, that our attitude of who we're working for and how we approach work can be used by God as an avenue of worship and a way to give Him glory. And people came out of service last week saying, I'm going to approach my job differently this week. And I had people write me notes and say, you know, Pastor, I, I, I hated my job or I don't like the people I work with, but I went in with a different attitude and it's made a difference. One lady said that instead of telling people to have a good day, she's intentionally said, um, I hope you have a blessed day. And people have taken notice of that. Just the word blessed because they know where she's coming from, that that's something that only God can do and she's speaking over them. She said, you know, it's amazing. Instead of me trying to solve people's problems, I've offered to pray for people. And she's actually asked people, what are you asking God to do? And so then she'll pray that over them. And it's made a difference in her work environment. One lady said she went into work Monday morning and started sharing the, the sermon notes with her fellow employees because she wanted to turn her workplace into a sanctuary. Well, there are some limitations at work. You can't stand up and preach, or you can't stand up maybe and, and sing songs out loud. You might lose your job if you do that, but there are boundaries. Now, the boundaries are loosened in your home, and definitely they ought to be loosened at the church. Um, in fact, I want to talk about that today, our corporate and private worship experience. I don't know what your background is, because maybe you grew up in a church that had a particular worship style, and if it has, that, that's shaped you. That's kind of told you this is appropriate or this is not appropriate. I grew up in a Methodist church. In the Methodist church, they're real big on responsive readings and, and unison prayers, and there are certain elements of the service that every week we sing a certain song or we say the Lord's Prayer. And uh, at once a quarter, we take communion, and we took communion by coming up to the front and kneeling on these benches that had little uh, cup holders and pieces of bread, and that was the way we did it in the Methodist church. But when I became a believer in high school, I began to venture out. I had friends who went to um, the Catholic church. Now, I went to the Catholic church. It was like going to um, spiritual aerobics, down, up, do this, say this, you know, all over the place. I, you know, I, I didn't know what to do and when to do it. It was really awkward, but the people that were kind of in the crowd, in, in, that knew the code, they were, just, they were just moving right along with it. They knew when to say something to the priest, and I was just kind of watching, saying, man, how do you get trained to do this? I don't know what you're doing. And it was really awkward. It was uncomfortable. That just wasn't my worship style. I wasn't used to that. But then I went to a Baptist church that opened up in our town, and I said, this is really like me. It's, they don't do responsive readings. They sing hymns that really talk about Jesus and pretty basic stuff and salvation. I like the way the pastor talks. And for me, that, was, that really resonated with me. But one Sunday night, a group of us went to this little church behind the Methodist church. There's a church that rented out an old, big church building. And we walk in there one Sunday night, and there's, there's tambourines, there's saxophones, there's guitars and drums up on the stage. People are standing there. Some people are actually, you know, doing some little jig. Uh, people are waving their hands. I said, this is like a party. This is pretty, pretty uncomfortable, but at the same time, pretty darn exciting. They're, they're, they're glad. In fact, I'd say it was the most exciting worship service I'd ever seen in my town. And I've learned that depending on what your culture is, what your background is, 
We have some things that sometimes are good because the ways that we've learned to worship, and sometimes they become barriers of, I don't know how to worship that way because I grew up this way. And I'm not here today to judge your style of worship or judge your spiritual background, but I want to tell you this, that there are a lot of avenues of expression to God in worship, and I want you to feel free to explore new ways. Maybe you'll be affirmed in ways that you said, you know, that's the way I've always worshiped, and I'm glad because that really expresses me. Because after all, it's not about how you worship outside as much as what's going on in here. And what's going on in here finds expression out here. And if your worship is a genuine expression of what's going on in your heart, then you're in the right place. I don't don't want you ever to do something because someone says, you got to worship this way. Because if it's not, it's not real worship. Nor do I want you to feel that I can't worship that way because that's not the way I was raised. You need to feel freedom to worship God like a child before a, a, a wonderful, good father. You know, kids are kind of unhindered or unhinged in, in how they express joy. And we were at, with, at Chick-fil-A last night, and our grandson, was he'd go up to the play area, and he'd bang his hands on the fence. He'd jump up, and he'd stomp his feet. That's just the joy of life. And sometimes for some of us, it's going to be expressed in a different way. So when we get to the end of the service today, what I want you to know is this. Uh, we're going to give you freedom to worship. And maybe some things that we'll talk about in this message today might affirm something in you. For others, it might liberate something in you. But above all, we want to worship God because he is worthy. So before we dive into a key scripture from Romans chapter 11, I'm going to ask you if you'd pray with me to that end. Father, we come before you today asking that you would open up our hearts, strip away, Father, the coverings that keeps us shackled from truly worship you with reckless abandon. I pray, Father, that our hearts should be totally yielded to you today. And just as we've experienced an awesome time of praise and worship, may that resonate not only through the rest of the service, but, Father, to the rest of this week for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 11. I originally wanted to start with chapter 12, but you can't really understand chapter 12 until you begin in chapter 11. So in verse 33 of chapter 11, Paul writes what's called the doxology, a song of praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, we put a little break in there, but Paul didn't have a break. Paul just flows into the next part. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You can't understand Romans 12 without understanding Romans 11. And you can't understand the doxology of Romans 11 without really looking at the first 10 chapters of the book of Romans because God, God has a plan that he's been working out. And Paul describes it. He says in Romans 1 that from the creation of the world, God's power and invisible nature have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. So even people without a Bible, even people without a church, know that there is a God to be worshipped. 
But he says that people have rejected that knowledge and instead worship things God has made, the animals, the sun, nature. And because of that, God has given them over to pursue the passions of their lusts. And so people have strayed very far from God. But then he says it's not only the Gentiles who are doing that, the Jews do it too. He said they've been given the scriptures. They have the prophets. They have the temple sacrifice. They have all, everything in their favor, and yet they too have turned against God. He says in chapter 3 that all alike have gone their own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's what God did, he said. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to be the substitute for their sins so that now those who were in Adam and doomed to die can now be in Christ and can live. And they can live as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So the Holy Spirit of God can live in them and move in them and help them to defeat the sinful desires of their heart and to live in a way that's pleasing to him. He says in this big scope of things that that God's been um, wanting to do this all along, to take Gentiles and Jews together and, and bring them in one great tree and he says the, the Jews had the advantage of they were, they were the root of that tree as it grew up, but some were broken off because of their unbelief. And God grafted in Gentiles who trusted in him. And he will again graft in the Jews who trust in him. So there'll be one great tree, one great body of Christ. It's not because of our worthiness. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of how good we are, but because of what he's done for us. It's God in his grace and mercy toward us. And so Paul, Paul just breaks into this psalm like, oh my, the, the, the depth of the knowledge of the wisdom of God. You know, he just, he's talking about theology and he just bursts out with this hymn in the middle of it because that's what happens when you focus on what God has done. And that's why if we follow Paul's train of thought, worship begins in that place. It always begins with what God has done. Now let me tell you just a quick definition of worship. Worship is nothing less than giving myself fully to the one who gave himself for me. Who gave himself for me. That's where it begins. That God has given himself for us. Paul says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy, look at what God has done. Everything I'm asking you to do is based on what he has done for us. He has done that. And he comes to this conclusion and says, for from him, And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Worship that begins with God focuses on what God has done for us. In fact, sometimes you hear the word magnify the Lord. We think about magnifying something. What do you do? You make it big. When you magnify the Lord, you call into focus the things he's done. And pretty soon you say, wow, God, the the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the awesomeness of God, he's getting bigger and bigger. And when God gets so big in front of you, guess what happens to your problems? You don't see them because you're focused so much on him. God wants us to magnify him because he's worthy. He is worthy. We sang about that this morning. He is worthy of our praise. And it begins there. See, you are driven to worship by guilt or grace. Guilt says, I I, I need to go to church because God won't be happy if I'm not there. And I better do these things because that's how you please God. That's that's a guilt-driven worship. Grace-driven worship says, I can't wait to thank God for what he's done for me. In view of his mercy, in view of what God has done, me, a sinner saved by grace, I got to tell him something. I got to do something. I got to express it in some way. That's where worship is begins. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, he tells us this. He tells us to do something. Worship always responds 
And he responds by presenting ourselves to him. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Offer, present, bring forth, give to him. Now, offer what? Your bodies. Now, he's, he's referencing here the sacrificial system that they were very familiar with. Sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and birds and all kinds of things that, that they gave to the Lord. And the reason those animals were given to the Lord was typically as a sacrifice in place of the life of a person. So the animal gave its life blood up so that the sinner could live. So in essence, you were transferring the guilt, and this was kind of a symbolic way of saying, I'm going to transfer my guilt upon the lamb or my guilt upon the bull. The bull will give its life. The lamb will give its life. It wasn't like the lamb gave a leg or, or, or gave an ear. It was the whole lamb. It was the, the lamb no longer lived. It was killed. It was an offering that became dead and offered that to the Lord as a sacrifice for our sins, as a replacement for us. And so they understood this from that imagery. Now, he says, offer your bodies, and he's not just speaking only of the physical body. He's speaking of the body and everything the body entails. So all of you is in encased in this thing called the body, your, your mind and your heart, that's all. So when he says, present your bodies, it's not like present the physical part of you, but not the other parts. No, it's all of you. Present all of you that's in this body. I heard a story of a, of a chicken and a pig who happened to pick up a Denny's menu, and they start reading through the, the menu there, and there's omelets, and there's scrambles, and there's bacon, and there's ham. And so they began to, to debate over who gave more. And the chicken said, well, you know what? Every single day I contribute eggs to that breakfast. And the pig said, oh, yeah? For me, to, for me to give bacon ham, it requires a complete sacrifice. Many of you come and you give a donation to the Lord, a donation of your time, a donation of your energy, a donation of your money, God doesn't want a donation. God wants a complete sacrifice. That's why that whole picture a month ago of Jesus said, if you want to follow me, here's what you got to do. Pick up the cross and follow me. He didn't ask for donations. He said, I want you dead. Take the cross, follow me. Be willing to give your whole life for me. And you know, it's, it's, it's easy to do at the beginning. I mean, when you're baptized, and probably for most of us, the day we were baptized, we said, God, I'm all yours. I mean, I'm, I'm totally surrendered to you. You get buried. I mean, you're totally surrendered to the person baptizing you. It's a beautiful picture. But I'll tell you, as time goes by, some of us start to say, God, how about, how about just a donation today? How about just a little contribution to your will? Because I've got other things that I'd like to do with my life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take back the promise I made in my baptism that I was all yours. How about I'm mostly yours? How about a good part of me is is you. See, the problem with living sacrifices is this. They keep crawling off the altar. <laughs> they, get, they get squeamish. This sacrifice is a painful thing. So we crawl off the altar. But he says, you know, if it's a living sacrifice, it means that you and I have to decide every single day, God, I'm here to do your will. One time, King David in the Old Testament, was moved by God's mercy. He said in, the, in Psalm 40 that it was like he was sinking down in a miry pit, going deeper and deeper. And God picked him up, put him on a rock. And he began to praise God. And in verse 6 of that chapter, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, 
but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. What he was saying was, God, you did such a great thing for me. An animal sacrifice isn't even a sufficient way of responding. The best thing I can do in response to a God like that is to offer myself and say, here am I. I'm here to do your will. And you know, this passage is actually quoted for Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It says that Jesus said these words to his father. I'm here to do your will. And we we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing the prospect of the cross in just a few hours and how difficult that was going to be. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I am here not to do my will, but to do your will. Isaiah experienced that. There's a beautiful picture of Isaiah Uh, seeing the Lord high and lifted up. You can read the story in Isaiah chapter 6. But he's in the presence of God, angels all around. And it says they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It says at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. God's mercy given to Isaiah. And then he heard a voice, the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. See, that's the natural response when your heart has been touched with the mercy and grace of God is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him. And then here's here's the result of that. Worship will result in a changed life. He says, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice it's to be transformed, not transform yourself. You cannot change yourself. You can make decisions to position yourself to be changed. And he actually tells us what to do. He says, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What is the pattern of this world? It's the lies. It's the beliefs of this worldly system. Now, they're not written anywhere in a book, but I'm telling you, they are very common to all of us. You hear the lies from the time you were little, lies that come from the enemy that say things like, you're a failure. Nobody loves you. You messed up way too much to recover from this. You'll never make it. That's just the way you are and always will be. Who do you think you are? Anyway, your life is not even worth living. And we have to replace those lies with truth, with the renewing of our mind based on the truth of who we are and what God has done. And we find that in Scripture. This week, uh, Armando, one of the gentlemen in our church, was telling me about a friend of his named Ghani. Ghani was promoted this past week at Fort Carson. He became a master sergeant. And uh, when it was his turn to speak, he repeatedly gave praise to God for his life. He reached onto the podium, brought out a bouquet of flowers and a gift, and presented them to his wife. He thanked his wife publicly for her support for him, for her prayers and her faithfulness. He thanked God for his wife. Then he thanked God for the men that God had put in his life, men who he meets with on a weekly basis, who hold him accountable when he'd start to drift off in his spiritual commitment. 
When that was over, one of the lieutenant colonels came over to Armando and said, you know this guy, right? He goes, yeah. He said, I've, I've actually served with this guy in some other places. And I've only known him to be an angry, bitter man. What I've seen today is a miracle that only God could do. I'm telling you, when, when you present yourself before God, he begins to renew your mind. And then here's what happens. That, then you start to validate God's will, that it is good and perfect and pleasing. You start to realize all along that God's been a good, good father. What he's wanted for you is actually good, and, and it's pleasing. It's actually rewarding. It's fun to do the things that God wants you to do, and it's actually perfect. It's just what you need. That's what God desires for us. We respond to God's mercy by giving ourselves, and then God comes in and, and transforms, not just tweaks. He renovates, overhauls our very lives. I want to get real practical for these last few minutes of what it looks like to present ourselves before the Lord. Because I believe when he says to present our bodies, he's referring to heart, mind, and body in totality. I think when we come before the Lord to present ourselves, our hearts should overflow with affection for him. In the book of Isaiah, there's a passage that actually Jesus quotes in the New Testament. He speaks of the religious people that he encountered, and he said this, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. What Jesus was noticing is that people were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts were disconnected. And I believe that true worship emanates from a heart that's filled with affection for God, a deep love for God. Now, duty is important in our lives. We do a lot of things out of duty. You can come to church just because you should come to church, and I should give, and I should praise and all that. But I'm telling you, if it does not flow from a heart of worship, it's, it's hypocrisy. It should flow from genuine love for the Lord. You know, consider this. A husband who gets his wife a card for their anniversary and a bouquet of flowers and says, Honey, you know, the guys tell me I should do this. It's really the right thing that husbands do. Traditionally, husbands give their wives cards and flowers, maybe chocolates, teddy bear. That's what I'm supposed to give to you. Happy anniversary. I don't think the wife would be near as pleased as if you gave her a car and gave her flowers and looked her in the eyes and says, Honey, I don't know how to say it to you, but you have been the greatest blessing of my life. I love you so much. Because when the gift flows from the heart that's filled with affection, it's powerful. And I know sometimes people say, well, uh, some people are more emotional naturally than others. And that's true. Some people can express themselves more naturally than others. Uh, but affection applies both to the thinking person and the emotional person. And, and if you give a card to a loved one and all you do is sign your name to something that Hallmark wrote, I'm telling you that it's much more powerful to put something in your own words. As rough and, and awkward as it may sound, it's beautiful when it comes from you because it's yours. That's why I had trouble as a kid with responsive readings. They were beautiful readings. They just weren't mine. They weren't from my heart. And have everyone kind of chant them together just lacks something. But I want it to come from my heart. Pastor Matt and Pastor Jake at times will ask you, hey, we just want you to worship now in your own words. And some of, some of you feel like, well, I prefer to have Chris Tomlin give me the words. Someone else, because they, they do them so pretty. But the most beautiful words that, that are ever sung to God come from your heart. And they don't even have to rhyme. And they don't, have to, they don't even have to be in a special tune, but they're yours. It has your own signature to it. 
Let your worship come from your heart to express your affection for him. There's also a mind, a mind that is focused on the truth of God. Jesus encountered this woman in Samaria at the well, and he begins to talk to her about her life and how she had all these husbands and and, uh, she needed living water. And Jesus said that you Samaritans worship what you do not know. He said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must, must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Our worship of God, if it's based on false views of God, a God that we've made up in our own head, isn't real worship of God. It must be anchored in the truth of who God is and what God has done. And in Samaria, they'd actually developed a whole different worship system, different priests, different temple, different location. But in the process of doing that, they actually kind of worship the different God, too. We want to worship the God of Scripture, a God who we read about in the Bible, the God who is a God of justice and a God of love, a God of creation, a God of intimacy. We worship a God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Your best preparation for worship, honestly, is time in God's Word. To get to know who he is and who you're worshiping. Yesterday I was reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and just thinking about where it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were yet dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, God, that's, that's why I can praise you, because when I was dead in sin, you made me alive in Christ. When I was listening to the enemy's voice, you spoke truth over me. And God, though I kind of squandered the years of my past, you now have made me into this beautiful workmanship to do your will. I can praise you for that. Let, let the truth of God influence our mind. And then the body. Our body has the privilege of displaying submission to God. I remember a lady once talking to a, a man who was kind of a grumpy Christian. And he says, well, I'm happy. I'm filled with joy. And she says, well, your heart better tell your face. (laughs) And I think for some of us, our heart needs to tell our body. Because physical expression is part of our lives. It's not a, a religious expression. It's a human expression. You go to a football game. I'll tell you, when I was watching the Super Bowl, what Bronco fans did when they won the Super Bowl, hands went up, high five and shouting, dancing. They were excited because their body had to respond. You go to a political rally. Are people quiet? Are people sitting in their seats? No, they're, they're active. They're, they're loud. And they're, they're raising their hands. Um, you go to a concert. People are very engaged in it physically. And the Bible gives a lot of different physical expressions that I think are very appropriate in worship. The first one I want to read is from Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I grew up in a church that, where nobody raised their hands. In fact, when I first came to this church 22 um, years ago, I don't remember anybody raising their hands. It wasn't our thing. That's, that's the charismatic thing. But I'm telling you, it's not a charismatic thing. It's a human thing. Because when you look at life, and how people respond. I mean, seriously, if you're going to offer yourself to someone and say, I am yours, how do you do it? Do you go like this? If it's someone with a gun, you go like this? <laughs> right? 
there is physical expression. If you're coming out of hiding and captivity and you're turning yourself in, don't you do this? I have nothing to hide. I'm all yours. It's a human expression. I even find it with children. I've got a little grandson that I love. And, you know, there are times when I'm babysitting him on Fridays where he'll, he'll have this look that he's getting tired and he's starting to get, get a little, little grumpy and he, he looks at me with desperation and all he does is do this. And I don't tell him, put those hands down and talk to me. You know what? That expression alone is worth a thousand words. And I pick him up and I hold him, and he cuddles on my chest, and we rock in the chair, and he falls asleep. You know, I just want to free you. I'm not telling you you have to raise your hands in worship, but I want to tell you this. It is biblical, for one, but it's a natural response of someone wanting to surrender to their father. It, it may be a cry of someone saying, Father, pick me up. It, it may be, it may be the, the humble response of someone saying, I'm turning myself in. It may be a receiving response of, I want everything you have to give me. I need you. I need you to fill me right now. I'm, I'm drained. I'm, I'm wiped out. I need you. When we were singing this morning, um, I, I sometimes lift the name of the Lord up almost like tangibly. I lift it up. I want to put it as the banner over everything in my life that Jesus is Lord. And so I lift his name up high. And, and it's a beautiful thing when you can express it physically. I know it may not be your culture, but you have permission to do that. Here's something else that's very appropriate in worship. We find this in Psalm 95. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I think this is the ultimate sign of humility before God. I mean, if Jesus were in this room today, if you saw him in all his glory and you saw the scars on his hands, I can tell you many of us in this room would immediately physically drop like this because it's the ultimate sign of humility. There'd be a physical expression. The other day, I had a prayer uh, day. Our staff's encouraged to have a monthly prayer day, and I had a time with the Lord. I was listening to some music, and as I listened to the music, I was thinking of the words, and I couldn't help but start singing to the words. And then as I was singing to the words, the words started to grab a hold of me. I was singing the song, All to Jesus, I Surrender. All to Him, I Freely Give. And you know what? When I got to that chorus, I Surrender, all my voice started shaking. I started weeping. I think I just started weeping because I wanted to resurrender all to the Lord. Sometimes your body is going to cry out and say, I've got to respond. I can't keep in here what's, what's going on because it's got to find a way of expression. And we want you to feel free to do that regardless of your culture because we're going to be doing that in eternity. We see in the book of Revelation, a kind of beautiful scene in the, in the fifth chapter. The angels have gathered together and they're surrounding the throne and they're, they're saying the worthiness of the one to be worshipped. And then it says, I looked, and then I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Did you get that? Worthy. He is worthy. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. 